Hello, I'm Josephine Burton and welcome back to the Dash Arts podcast, seeing the world through an artistic lens. 80 years ago this autumn, a few months after the Nazis marched into Ukraine, more than 30,000 Jews were murdered over two days in the suburbs of Kiev. Over the course of the Nazi occupation, a further 100,000 are thought to have been murdered in the same spot at Babinyar. This month, Dash Arts will premiere a new production, Songs for Babinyar, in Berlin, London and Ukraine, marking this anniversary through music and theatre. It's been an extraordinary journey for us, and guided by our brilliant podcast producer, Rachel Head, we've created a podcast that tells the story of the making of the show, a show which attempts to answer the question of how you honour and remember atrocity in a place where the ghosts still haunt us. Josephine, thanks for sitting down with me again. Tell me a little bit about Babinyar and the piece that you're working on. How did it come about? And can I have a little rundown of the show? Yes, of course. So song, Songs for Babinyar is uh, like nothing I've ever done before, I would say. it's a, um, I'm working with three extraordinary musicians who all um, have some theatrical background and training. So they, they sort of sit, all three of them in their different ways, sit between the worlds of music and theatre. But they're primarily performers who have solo performances, who have bands, who are incredibly sought after across the world and have never worked together as a three before. So I'm very excited about that. And the show that we're creating... At its core is a is a series of phenomenal pieces of music. Some of them are completely new. Some of them are reinterpretations of traditional songs, and and some of them are um, a kind of well known music that uh, that they're all familiar with. And we are threading these gorgeous songs together into a narrative, which will layer through stories and testimony and poetry the experience of what it was to live through the tragedy of Babinia. I mean, the show sounds incredible and I can't wait to see it, but it does sound like it must have been quite a difficult process of finding the people that were right for that show. And um, I'm actually speaking with Mariana and Sveta and Yuri uh, for the podcast so I guess I want to ask you know how you came to work with them specifically and the process of getting them all together and making the show in a world that you know has been quite disrupted over the past couple of years it, it, it was a slow burn of a, of a of a process I would say I in 2017 I worked separately with the absolutely brilliant musician Mariana Sadowska whose process is to sort of archive folk songs and then reinterpret them in her own way and with Yuri Gergi who's a much more kind of contemporary electronica DJ kind of kind of wonderful artist who loves sort of excavating old records and reinterpreting them and um, I worked separately with the two of them and Dash Art spent five years working with artists from across the former Soviet Union 
And we made some brilliant projects with artists, musicians, including the phenomenal Mariana Sadowska as a solo artist and Yuri Gerji in quite different ways as part of our programme. Um, and then we moved into into our new season of work in, in 2018, thinking about what it meant to be European. And that I really wanted to hold on to those connections. And at some point just before the pandemic, I started a conversation with the um, a lady called Marina Pacenti, who was then the director of the Ukrainian Institute in London, who um, we sat and had a coffee. And she said, oh, I really would love to do something with you and Mariana and this extraordinary um, singer Svetlana Kundish, who is Ukrainian Jewish and um, plays amazing folk music and Yiddish sings Yiddish songs. And, and, and Marina had this instinct that Svetlana and Mariana would be brilliant together. So the two of us sort of started chatting and we got Mariana and Svetlana together and they were up for it. And then I threw Yuri into the mix, but we didn't really have the hook for it yet. And and then it sort of occurred to us as the pandemic um, arose and everything was sort of went into, I guess, some sort of stasis so that nothing was going to move for a while. It, it, it suddenly occurred to us during that last year that we were on the cusp of the 80th um, anniversary of uh, the tragedy of Babinyar. This September marked the 80th anniversary of the horrific tragedy. And um, suddenly the kind of, it all coalesced into an event or a piece of work that would connect um, with that date and, and be made by those three artists. So I suppose it was a, a lo- bit of a journey of conversation between the artists and with Marina. And then the pandemic meant, meant that the delay kind of um, enabled this, this, this kind of extraordinary connection to emerge. So who proposed the idea of Babi I, I I guess what I'm asking is, why, why did it feel like something you wanted to make now why was that right for dash arts now and were all of the musicians actors on board with that immediately there was an immediate yes we want to talk about this we want to engage with this date it is an important date to talk about um as i'm sure we'll go into as part of the podcast partly because this is a horrific rip in society um and needs to be acknowledged and discussed but also because um it's never really fully been addressed for political and historical reasons um, so they were they all of the artists absolutely latched onto it as an idea and a concept immediately and with absolute determination. However, we then had unbelievably interesting and quite difficult conversations about how we would mark this date sensitively, um, protect the kind of protect ourselves through this process because the minute you start excavating this material, it's just awful. Um, and very upsetting and as musicians I don't think the artists have quite the same kind of protective layer of skin because they 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 touch this art they touch the music very intensely and and don't have necessarily either the training or the ability to sort of explore that through somebody else's experience they're very much as artists encountering this music as themselves so we needed to talk a lot about how we would go into this material in a in a sensitive thoughtful protective way um and we're so aware there are so many like booby traps along the way because it is so political. So there was absolute commitment to wanting to do it, but a real uh, sensitivity and an awareness that it could be, had to we had to tread very carefully. Is there an, a narrative t- to the story? Is can you tell me a little bit about what the what the show actually the format of the show is going to be? That's a really good question. I've I've, got, I've kind of got two answers for you. I think I think the first answer is. Is that, is that we're not telling a work of fiction. Our, our work is entirely informed by the um, conversations and the stories of people 
people who experienced Babinya themselves. And, and we're very determined not to tell it in one voice. So we wanted to layer our, our piece with different experiences, different stories, um, so there's no one person's story. That's the first sort of thought to throw in the mix, that it's not a piece of fiction. It is absolutely grounded in the real experience of living through Babinya. And then we were so privileged to meet the, the extraordinary Rahil Blankman, who is a, a congregant of Svetlana. Svetlana kind of has this double life of being both a professional um, singer and a cantor in a, in a synagogue in, in Braunschweig, which is, I think, I don't actually exactly know where it is, somewhere, near, no, somewhere in northern Germany. Svetlana has a, a, a great friendship with one of her congregants, who's 93, has lived in Germany, Germany since the sort of the collapse of the, of the, of the Soviet Union, uh, and is herself a survivor of Babinyar. She was put on a train in 1941, in the summer of 1941, by her parents, and sent on to, um, to be with family in Siberia and told that her family would follow, and they never did. And she eventually came back to Kiev after the war to find her family and discover that they'd all died. And um, the, her stories are unbelievable. Her first-hand experience is just extraordinary privilege to hear. Um, and her kind of humanity and love of life is just so moving. So her story has, is really at the heart of our work. We've incorporated her voice in, throughout the piece, and also in the songs as well as including audio samples to sort of snapshots of of the experience. So we've got Rahil's personal testimony. We've been very inspired by an extraordinary book by someone called Anatoly Kuznetsov, who wrote a book called Babinyar, a document in the form of a novel, and that it's an episodic stories. It was written like a diary, but published after the war, and we've used his, his writing and then poetry by contemporary poets. Um, and certain modern poets. So it's a mixture of them. And, and, and we go through the cycles. I, I've been thinking a lot about the, the lived experience of trauma and we're not going through it. It's not, it's not going to be a sort of natural progression of a kind of chronological story of the experience of living through Babinyar and the Second World War into the future. It, it's more about rethinking and retelling the story over and over. I suppose experiencing what it is to go back into this place um, from a kind of, I guess, a experience of, of kind of traumatic experience, but with this unbelievable music and with an attempt to find some peace in that experience at the end. So it's not going to feel hopeless. It's going to feel extremely beautiful and poignant and and moving. Uh, and there will be, I promise, some um, kind of uh, kind of element of hope and possibility at the end of the work. What did you already know of the background of the people working on this show? Because I imagine that makes a difference to how difficult these conversations are to have. And and how important was it to you to be able to bring in the, the real life experience of these of these people and the team that you created into the show? I think the work that we are that we are building together with Mariana and Svetlana and Yuri and also myself and Yael, who's our dramaturg, and Marie, who's this extraordinary designer. Marie Blank, Blank is, is um, helping us to design the piece, but also, most importantly, um, caption it so that all of the lyrics, which are in Russian and in Ukrainian and in Yiddish and in Hebrew, are um, projected really brilliantly and thoughtfully and embedded into the set so that we as an audience member can experience you know the full texture of the work um we we were very we were very committed to to looking at the kind of full 
breadth of, of Ukrainian Jewish music and connections because there's a really extremely long history of Jewish culture in Ukraine and, and it's centuries and it's old. Um, and it, it, it was really important for us that we weren't going to just tell the story of, that, of the collapse of that moment in 1941, um, but we would find a way of putting it into some longer context. So quite, quite a lot of the work is actually drawn from much older periods. I mean, Mariana found this, this um, song that was sung in, in the, a Chris, an Orthodox, a Ukrainian Orthodox um, uh, song that has this sort of... She believes it's rooted in this old... Jewish Hasidic song, which is a nigun, which is a song, a song without words. Um, and so she, she, she would kind of brought it to the table and we then got very excited about it. And Svetlana quite sweetly was like, oh, I love this song. I'm gonna, I think I might bring it into my synagogue. So like, you know, there's this lovely moment of like an old song from this sort of church, this Orthodox church song going back into the synagogues, which probably came from the synagogues initially. So, that, so there's a sort of a long period of history that we wanted to find ways of telling. All three of the artists, Mariana, Yuri and Svetlana, are Ukrainian, born. Um, they all now live in Germany. Mariana's uh, um, Ukrainian Orthodox. Svetlana is Ukrainian Jewish. She, and she spent a, a period of time of her life after 91 in, in Israel before moving to Germany. And Yuri, I'm not 100% sure of Yuri's parentage, but it is a bit mixed. He has Greek in there and he's Jewish and he's your, you know, there's all sorts of mix of his worlds. It was really crucial that we found a way of sort of, of, of bringing themselves and their histories to the piece. So Mariana would kind of bring out this Orthodox Christian stuff and these amazing songs of the grandmothers and traditional Ukrainian folk music. Svetlana brought this Yiddish and this um, klez- old kind of Yiddish Hasidic songs and um, music of the synagogue and poetry. And Yuri kind of joined in, occasionally bringing a bit of mixture of everything, including some phenomenal old records. What we wanted to do was contextualize that Ukrainian Jewish experience, lived experience through the 20th century. Um, and it is so complicated. Um, and, and I learned so much. I mean, I'm, I myself am Jewish. I have Jewish background and um, I'm aware of, of the, com- the, the, chal- the complexities and the, um, of, uh, of, 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 of what it is to be Jewish in, in Ukraine. But I had no idea really until I kind of got deeper and deeper into this sort of extraordinary story. So at the beginning of the, co- the conversation, when you asked me um, how it was to experience this with the artists, not only is it, is it very, very difficult to tread this line between um, uh, talking about collaboration during the Second World War um, and everyone being complicit in a time of great atrocity you know everyone in some ways is complicit during that experience but also these sort of tensions exist today so there's there is suspicion about how you talk about um Babinyar in Ukraine today because quite understandably um when because Ukraine's at war with Russia any a, a, any mention of anything historical that's got anything to do with the Soviet Union or Russia is just difficult so we had to sort of say on the other on one hand we need to be really sensitive we need to be really careful we need to make sure that we are we we're not saying you know we're not stand going out of line and do, being creating a work that is political. And on the other hand, my extraordinary artists are absolutely committed to 
uh, to talking. They really want to talk about some of these issues. They want to talk about some of these stories of of being complicit, of of the fact that it's a bit murky, I, the fact that when, you know, that in, a, in a situation when everyone is a victim, victims do difficult things to each other and victims are driven by different motivations uh, in a time of, you know, in, in a time of tragedy. So they, the artists both want to go into these dark places and talk about them and acknowledge them. And they're also aware of the sensitivities about it being exploited or being under, misunderstood. And that comes me on to, 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 to your initial question, which was, you know, like, how is it for me? It's a privilege for me to, to be working with these artists who are talking and thinking about these things um, and, and knowing and, and they understand. They understand the experience so well. It's lived experience for them. It's not lived experience for me. And I sit slightly on the outside of it um, and I'm learning from them. I, I think the fact that I am Jewish sort of helps me a little bit. It, it gives me a um, an awareness of how it is to be an outsider and how and a, and a sort of an awareness of the sensitivities of treading on this territory. Because although I don't know it so intimately, I have thought extensively over the years about 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 the Holocaust, and I think it gives me a slightly an understanding personally. What to me is a sort of a, really important is to talk about the context for the for the work because. Um, we're privileged to have received support from from the Ukrainian Institute, which is which is a kind of cultural institution in Ukraine itself. It's got it's sort of governmental, and, and they have absolutely supported this piece and supported the ambitions of this piece to tell these stories and to go in with a spirit of openness and honesty and to try to um, go deep go deeper into 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 the experience of Babinia. There's no conditions to their funding, which is really brilliant. Um, and given the sensitivities, particularly around the war with Russia, that they're that they're prepared for us to, to 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 tell these stories, which some of some of them might be quite difficult. So we have funding from the Ukrainian Institute, and we have funding from the Goethe Institute, um, which is also brilliant. You know, the artists themselves are German, and um, the fact that we've got a kind of German governmental support through through Goethe. Uh, amusingly, the Goethe Institute are paying for the show to go to Kiev, where we're going in December, and the Ukrainian Institute are paying for it to go to Germany and to London. So it's a lovely kind of reciprocal thing. And then we have some funds from um, some other foundations, including some Jewish foundations in the UK. So it's a proper, like, the kind of partnerships and the collaborations that are coming to sponsor it are as rich and as textured as the work itself. Speaking with Josephine and doing my own research on the massacre of Baba Yar and the tensions and traumas that still exist today in Ukraine made me realise how important it was going to be for me to go away and speak to somebody who could give me some wider context on what happened there. So I found Dr. Uyan Blaka, who's an associate professor in comparative Russian and East European culture. I asked him to give a little bit of context on his work on Babanya, as well as to give us a little bit of context on what happened to try and unpack the tragic history of the site. Um, so I teach culture and literature of Eastern Europe, um, and I sort of specialise in Ukraine. And specifically in, in my kind of research, I specialise in questions of cultural memory. So. Babinyar is one of the things that I've, I've looked at, sort of how it's how it's remembered today, how it's represented and so on. At the time of World War II, Babinyar was kind of on the edge of the city of Kiev. Um, it was one of many sort of ravines, which is quite a characteristic feature of the landscape around Kiev. It sort of sits above the river, the Dnipro River, and there are these kind of deep ravines going down. 
And Babinyar was one of those ravines, and it was sort of on the edge of the city at that time. Now, basically, the site where um, the massacres happened is, is kind of a city park, essentially. At the time of World War Two, when the Germans uh, invaded the Soviet Union in 1941, um, they got to Kiev, and um, the they were carrying out the, the sort of Nazi policy of um, of the Holocaust, essentially. Um, and when they arrived in Kiev, fairly shortly after they arrived, they ordered the Jews of the city to assemble in a certain place and walk from this place in the city towards Babinya. The Jews thought that they were being assembled for deportation to somewhere else, uh, but in fact the plan was to uh, murder them at the edge of the city um, and bury them in a mass grave. Uh, and that's essentially what happened. So that was on the uh, at the end of September 1941. Uh, in just a couple of days, more than 33,000 Jews in Kiev were murdered at this site on the edge of, of Kiev uh, by the Nazis. Babinyar as a, as a site of mass killing was continued to be used uh, throughout the German occupation. Uh, it's not known how many people are were killed there, how many people are buried there. Uh, it's reckoned to be more than 100,000. Uh, the largest group of victims are Jews, but the Nazis also murdered uh, others there, such as Roma, uh, mentally ill people from a nearby um, hospital, um, Soviet prisoners of war, uh, also Ukrainian nationalists. Uh, so there are, there are whole lots of different groups of people who were who were murdered there. But it's prime. It was initially and primarily it was a site. Uh, of uh, the murder of Jews as part of the Holocaust. It's been a difficult thing to talk about. It It is still a difficult thing to talk about. What has been the response of the people? Why do you think it is still such a difficult thing to have a conversation about? Yeah, I mean, the story of kind of talking about Babinyar and remembering it uh, is a quite a convoluted and con- uh, complex one. Um, because... When after the war, um, obviously you had the, the the Soviet Union retook its own territory, um, and uh, it also expanded further uh, further westwards. You know, annexing what's what's today Western Ukraine. Um, and the story of what had happened on these territories, specifically to the Jews, was not spoken about in the Soviet Union. It was essentially a, a banned topic. Um, because this, the Soviet narrative of the war was that uh, Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union and the Soviet people collectively uh, stood up and defended their homeland from the Nazi invaders. And there was no room within that to talk about the sort of victimhood of specific groups at the hands of the Nazis. So all, all the victims of the Nazis were... Uh, the usual phrase that was used were peaceful Soviet citizens. And speaking about um, Jews as a specific group who were targeted by the Nazis uh, was seen as uh, a kind of uh, sort of narrow uh, uh, point of view. It was seen as it was associated with Zionism. It was associated with a sort of Jewish nationalism, um, with sort of cosmopolitanism, all of these kind of uh, uh, this sort of Soviet terminology was used about this, 
Um, and you could you could get into serious trouble for pursuing the memory of the Holocaust in the Soviet Union. Uh, I mean, and also that post-war period was a very a period when anti-Semitic um, sentiment uh, on the part of the Soviet authorities was very strong. Uh, so you had the persecution and indeed the murder of uh, Jewish intellectuals in the in those the decade after the war and in the years after the war. I know so you had the infamous doctor's plot against Stalin and so on. Um, so it, it wasn't an atmosphere in which the Holocaust could be commemorated in any uh, meaningful way. And that memory was essentially um, suppressed until the end of the Soviet Union. In the last years of the Soviet Union, it was spoken about to a certain degree. Um, after Stalin, it was, you know, during de-Stalinization, it was also, there was a certain amount of um, space was created in which the Holocaust could be spoken about um, and things could be written about the Holocaust. Um, but it was all very, very cautious. Um, and a monument was built at the site of Babinyar in 1976. Um, but again, it did not commemorate the Jewish victims. It commemorated the Soviet victims. Um, and it was, on, it was only in 1991 that an a specifically Jewish uh, memorial was uh, installed at uh, Babinyar. And that's, uh, there's, there's this uh, menorah uh, monument which is, has been there since 1991 and it's still there. Um, yeah, that's fair. I mean, after the collapse of the Soviet Union and as soon as, you know, when Ukraine became independent, all of these kind of um, official... Um, the sort of official ban on what you could could and couldn't say about the past uh, was was removed, and people could could come and could propose uh, commemorative initiatives of various kind. But what you see after 1991 is that nobody really takes responsibility for the site. So the the state is, I mean, for various reasons, the state is not really interested in um, particularly pursuing this topic. There are lots of reasons, you know, you could say it's, it just wasn't particularly a priority. There were, you know, it's, Ukraine was economically in a very bad situation at this time. They barely had money to build roads and, you know, never, never mind build monuments. There perhaps wasn't just, just wasn't the kind of political will at that time. Um, you, know, you could talk about the Jewish community in Ukraine and Kiev, which was depleted obviously by that time, um, had been depleted by the war, but people had been leaving as well. And a lot of uh, Ukraine's Jews left around the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union as well. So you had a sort of smaller community there, which you know, with with maybe less uh, less clout and less influence, you know, in terms of kind of influencing the sort of commemorative processes in the city. Um, but you do see a lot of small monuments being put in, in Babinyar by small kind of sort of interest groups. Um, so obviously there, there's that monument, but there, there, there are other monuments which were put up uh, during the 90s and the 2000s, you know, to a uh, monument to Ostarbeiters, so that was Ukrainian Soviet citizens who were deported to Germany and sort of used as forced labour. Uh, there's a monument to the children of Babinyar. Uh, there are monuments to Orthodox priests who were killed there. There was a monument to Ukrainian nationalists. Uh, and so on. You know, there, there are actually a couple of dozen of these small monuments all over the site. Because of 
what had happened after the war as well, it was very difficult to actually sort of identify where these murders had really happened. And it's only really been done in the last couple of years, you know, sort of uh, with any degree of accuracy. Because, you know, on the one hand, the, the, there was no, uh, well, on the one hand, the Germans tried to cover up what had happened. Um, you know, so the, there's a very sort of grim and gruesome uh, history of them uh, digging up the bodies and burning the bodies in order to kind of get rid of the evidence. Um, then uh, in 1961, there was a, a massive um, sort of landslide at the site. And this was to do with, I, I, don't, I, I don't remember the, the exact story, but this was to do with a, a dam breaking and kind of uh, a mudslide, uh, a, a very, very large-scale mudslide happened at the site and it kind of filled in the ravine. Uh, and also, it, it actually killed lots of people as well. You know, people's houses were, were caught up in this. Uh, and that kind of really, really changed the landscape. Um, and then it was sort of redeveloped as a park. So with all those changes in the landscape, it became very, very difficult to actually, you know, say where things had actually happened. And, and to sort of, uh, it was, you know, there's this sort of complex process of erasure that happened basically there. Um, <laughs> you know, so, you know, that's basically because of all these very complicated processes, um, there was never a, any kind of single big, um, well-funded commemorative project that's built, that was built there since, since Ukrainian independence. You know, what, what happened after independence was that, you know, you could you could talk about it, you could propose a, a project, you could you could do whatever you want, basically. Um, you know, there were no restrictions on what could be said about the, about that history. But on the other hand, there was there was no kind of concerted effort on the on on the part of the state or on the part of the, the Kiev city authorities to actually really do something with this. And there's also a whole long story about the legal status of the territory as well. And that there have been sort of various sort of wranglings over the ownership of the site and so on. So it's, and even if you come down to the level of you know like the the key of Ukrainian Jewish community, even there you know there are differences of opinion over what should be what should happen. So you know there's this very very sort of complicated set of circumstances that mean that it remains a kind of mm, relatively poorly developed memory site. Although the last sort of five years or so. There have been big plans uh, put in place for, for changing that. This might not be something you can answer or even a particularly pertinent question, but I just wonder, like, how do you think that the silence around Babinyar and the and the tragedy around Babinyar has affected artistic output of, of generations of, of people from Kiev? Do we see that that pain and that trauma reflected in in art and in writing? And yeah, I mean, it's it's a really interesting question and an interesting story. Um, I mean, the people started to respond to these events uh, during the war itself. Uh, you know, there are writers, uh, poets who are uh, responding even in the 1940s. So, you know, one of, and in, in multiple languages, because, you know, it's worth remembering that Kiev at 
this time or just before the war was a, was a multicultural city. It was a place where, where many languages, you could hear many languages on the street. And historically, it's been a very multicultural place, you know, with obviously Ukrainian, but Russian and Yiddish and, and Polish and, and even you know, German to an extent as well. Um, and you see writers uh, uh, in the interwar period in the Soviet Union, you had um, Soviet literature in Ukrainian, in Russian and in Yiddish being produced in, in Kiev. Uh, and those writers are writing about Babinyar from very, very soon after the events. Um, so, you know, one of the most famous is a Ukrainian poet called Nikola Bajan, um, who was writing about this already before the, the war had ended. Um, but there were Russian language writers and Yiddish language writers as well uh, who were writing about this. And you also have the kind of uh, sort of journalistic or more documentary types of writing. We could, we could talk about Ilya Ehrenborg, for example. Um, we could talk about uh, Vasily Grossman, you know, kind of maybe more generally about the war on the territory of Ukraine. Um, then, as I said, that you know, the, after the Second World War, the topic becomes something which is something of a taboo. Uh, but there are writers locally who are pursuing this even in the 1950s. So another important name here is Viktor Nekrasov, who was a writer from Kiev who wrote uh, sort of in the Soviet press, uh, looking at, at developments in uh, Germany and Poland and saying, you know, there are the Holocaust is being commemorated there and we are not commemorating the Holocaust as it happened in Kiev, in, in the Soviet Union, Ukraine, and, and sort of asking why has this not happened? Uh, there were initiatives from local well-known Kiev architects, particularly well-known two architects, Josef Karakas and Avram Miletsky, who had uh, proposed a memorial. So there were a lot of people in Kiev at that time, you know, whether it was sort of activists or writers or um, you know architects even who were who wanted to do something about this but were not allowed to do it. Um, you also have a very interesting phenomenon of people gathering. You know, basically illegally at the site of Babinyar to commemorate it in the 1960s, and it became quite. It became this sort of site where basically dissidents of different backgrounds in Kiev could come and talk to one another. Um, so one of the most famous was famous was on the 25th anniversary in 1966. There was a meeting there of you know, Ukrainian dissidents, uh, Jewish Kiev dissidents, um, and. There was, there was a very famous speech made at that meeting by Ukrainian dissident called Ivan Zuba uh, about the need to commemorate the Holocaust, about the need to talk about anti-Semitism in Ukraine, um, you know, about about the need to kind of re for reconciliation between Jews and Ukrainians. Um, so it did become, you know, despite the official restrictions, it became a sort of site where these sorts of conversations were were being had. One of the most important names to mention is Anatoly Kuznetsov. He was another writer from, he was a sort of Russian-Ukrainian background. He wrote a, a documentary novel, which was called uh, Babi Yar uh, in Russian, uh, which first came out, I think it was 1966, in, in a kind of edited, heavily edited version. Um, and that's a fascinating text. It's really, I mean, it's, it's known, a lot of people know this novel because it was actually, because Kuznetsov defected to the West, he actually came to London. Um, and he brought the original manuscript on uh, sort of photographic negatives. A lot of it is not about the Holocaust, actually. A lot of it is about 
the city of Kiev. It's about the, um, the the kind of society there, the environment in which you grew up. It's just describing it. Um, it's a yes, it's about the invasion, but it's about the kind of everyday experience of that. Uh, and all of those things were the censors from the book. Um, he even talks about the nineteen, you know, when he discusses the nineteen thirties and the famine and things like that. All of these things were kind of. Um, censored from the book but there is there are these very important sections which deal very specifically with what happened to the Jews at Babinyar. Uh, he also used the uh, testimony of an actress called Dina Pronicheva who was uh, uh, working in the I think it was in the puppet theater in Kiev at that time and she she was Jewish and she uh, survived the shootings uh, she was she was taken there to be executed but somehow you know she she wasn't killed um, and she managed to escape, and Kuznetsov uses her testimony essentially um, as part of his novel. So that you know, that was that's probably the most famous part of this novel. And it was when when it when it was published in the West, that was kind of the testimony of somebody who who had survived the executions of the Jews in Babinyar was was probably the most important and striking feature of it. So with that and with the response to that novel and all the various different things that people have done over the years, do you think there's a difference now? Do you think there's an appetite for this that there wasn't before? I think there is a, there is a, a certain appetite or, or sort of willingness to, to talk about this. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say that it's a topic that is, you know, sort of on constantly on everybody's lips but it's it's certainly something that's that, that's that's gained a lot of prominence recently um and it is discussed you know you you can read about there's a there's a very active and lively discussion about the what should happen at Babinya uh in the Ukrainian media you know so I just a couple of weeks ago watched a mainstream tv channel discussion where they you know, was, you know this is this kind of uh, sort of prime time political discussion show where the whole the whole program was dedicated to this topic. You know, and you had sort of lots of different perspectives on it. There's increasingly you hear people talking about how we should think about what happened to Baminyar as a tragedy of of Ukraine and of everybody who lived in Ukraine. Um, you know, and it should be embraced by people who live there today and should be remembered. William, thank you. That's, I mean, incredibly put and very much what we're trying to achieve. Thank you so much for your time. I mean, I want to say actually, just is there anything that I haven't asked you that I should have? Is there anything else that you can speak to on Babiya that I haven't been able to ask you? I think the other the other thing that's maybe maybe to kind of draw back in a sort of bigger perspective on on why Babiya is so important is because it tells this a part of the story of the Holocaust that's kind of been neglected a little bit, and that's you know the so-called Holocaust by bullets. Um, you know, and the image we have of the Holocaust is kind of centered on camps and on Auschwitz, really. Uh, and of course, you know, that's hugely important and has to be has to be remembered. And, uh, and there's no question about that. But there's around about a third of the victims of the Holocaust were uh, in the territories of the Soviet Union invaded by the Nazis and their story was not of being deported to the camps, it was of being murdered where they were found essentially. Uh, but there are lots and lots of small sites like this all over Ukraine, Belarus, Lithuania. You know, these are the, these are the territories which are historically the pale of settlement. 
know, going back to the, the Russian Empire days where, where Jews were allowed to live. They weren't allowed to live in Russia proper, but they were they were kind of confined to the territories that are Ukraine, Belarus and Lithuania, essentially, and sort of eastern Poland. And of course, this happened to be also the territory that the Nazis managed to occupy. You know, the Nazi occupation of the Soviet Union was the occupation of what's essentially today Ukraine, Belarus and, and the sort of Baltic states. The story of the Holocaust is a bit different there. We have this image of people being deported from Western Europe to the camps in the East. Um, but there we have people being murdered where they live, and often which makes it so difficult to talk about with the either complicity or, you know, with of their neighbours or with their neighbours looking on and doing nothing. And that whole story of how this could have happened between people who had previously lived side by side as neighbours is is still being worked worked through in Poland and, and in Ukraine, um, especially, you know, that, that whole question of reactions to the Holocaust and the part of, on the part of the non-Jewish population, that, that, that's a kind of question that really is raised by places like Babinyar. And I think Babinyar, you know, maybe more than any other site, raises that very, very difficult question. Um, and that's a question that you, you, you kind of face less in, in, or, or is not spoken about so much in the Western European context. I guess we saw people taken away and whilst traumatic, there's a degree of detachment in that that you can't experience if you, well, if people are being shot right there in your town. So pe- people were taken away and you, and you had, you know, like in France, you had a sort of collaborationist regime, yeah, but you didn't have people in every sort of small town turning on their neighbours or being faced with this choice of whether to turn on their neighbours and those neighbours being killed, you know, right in front of their eyes. You know, it's an extremely complex and difficult subject and, it, and it's something that you know, because it was that history wasn't spoken about in in the Soviet Union for for decades, it's you have this kind of long, long delay in dealing with this problem, um, which makes it even more complicated. But I think you know that's why it's really important now to to talk about Babinya. I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with the musicians for Babinya, Sveta Kundish, Mariana Sadovska, and Yuri Gerji. All are beautiful musicians, as well as incredible and passionate. Sveta, thank you so much for joining me. Can you tell me a little bit how you met Josephine and joined the Songs for Baba Yar project? I haven't met Josephine in person yet. (laughs) Um, This is the funny thing. Even though we virtually know each other for almost two years now and we um, have many friends and colleagues in common. Actually it all started from a concert at the Jewish Museum in London I believe uh, two years ago. I was invited to uh, play a concert with Alan Byrne and uh, Marina Pesenti from the Ukrainian Institute was at this concert and she liked the show and she also knew Mariana Sadovska. And she had the idea of creating a project which would involve some musicians and monk others, me and Mariana. Uh, she felt like this Jewish-Ukrainian connection is something very interesting. And we actually didn't have the theme of Babinyar in mind when we started the conversation. 
It was very clear from the start that Yuri Gurji, our dear friend and colleague from Berlin, is a very important part of whatever it's going to be. Um, and very soon we realized that this year is the 80 years since the massacre. And it was clear that we actually cannot talk about um, Ukrainian Jewish connection, history, tradition, culture, or anything, uh, avoiding this. And uh, so that's how the idea of the project emerged. And um, we'll see what we create. It's still a bit of a mystery. Well, all the best things are. So <laughs> I have absolute faith. Do you mind if I ask what your background is, Feta? Where are you from? I was born in Ukraine in 1982. Um, in a Jewish family of an army officer and um, spent 13 years of my life in different parts of Ukraine. My family moved from place to place quite a lot and in 95 we emigrated to Israel. From there, when I was 25, I came to Europe to study music and uh, profession of a Jewish cantor. Um, so I'm I'm doing my little world journey. When Babinia came up as a topic, what were your first thoughts? It felt right and it felt scary and it still feels the same way um, two years after we started to talk about the project because this is a topic which, um, which hurts when you touch it, be it reading a book or a poem or seeing a picture or singing about it from stage. Um, it really hurts and it touches a very deep, scary place and it brings questions about human nature. So I am approaching this project and now we are at the final stage when we're actually creating the show and bringing it on stage with all the fears, but with all the certainty that we have to give it a voice. This particular setting, this particular ensemble this group of people working on it together. Uh, at the same time, um, a very important moment for me was that I have a very dear friend. She's 94 years old and she lives in Brunswick in Low Saxony, uh, where the community is located in which I work as a cantor. Uh, her name is Rahil Blankman. And she's a dear person to my heart who lost her entire family in Babiyar. I met her about eight years ago. We became very close very quickly. I heard many stories about her life. And among those were the war years, the last days with her family before they perished in Babiyar. Um, in our synagogue in Braunschweig in Brunswick, we have a tradition during the Yiskor prayer. It's a prayer uh, part of a service in which you remember people from your family, your friends, people from your community um, who are not among us anymore. You, you say special prayers, communal and personal prayers. And we always use some poetry uh, which talks about Babi Yar because of Rahil as a part of the ceremony. So it's already a tradition. It's Minhaga Makom, we say in Hebrew, of my community. Um, the voice of Rahil is also part of what we are doing on stage, her story, her memories, which she shared with us. And it's, um, 
it's precious and it's hard. She's a unique person and I'm very glad that the story of her family and her mem memories will stay in this piece for many years from now. I mean, it sounds exceptional and I can't wait to hear it. But um, if you're able to tell me, what is the sort of narrative of the show? How are you able to incorporate her words into your music? There is a narrative, there is her voice, there are songs, and there are our own thoughts and feelings which we stepping out. It's not like playing a role or anything. What I like about the idea of the show is that we, the three artists on stage, um, we remain ourselves. We don't pretend to be anybody else. We speak to the audience, be it with our songs or with our words or with the text of the script. There is a lot of um, room for improvisation in terms of spontaneously speaking to the audience, uh, sharing feelings and thoughts and uh, opinions. This is a very unique structure and it feels very personal and it feels very honest and it feels very true to who we are as artists and as people in 2021. It's the first time I'm a part of a show in this kind of a format. I'm very curious how it will feel, how it will develop, how I will feel on stage. It's very challenging. It's very, very inspiring. So I am really looking forward to the rehearsals and to meeting my dear colleagues who um, I love from the bottom of my heart, Mariana Sadowska and Yuri Gurji. They are in the first place, they're amazing people. And it goes without saying that they are amazing artists, but our personal connection and understanding of the world and of people is very um, close, very similar. So that creates another level of putting the show together and making music together. It's very special because of this personal connection we, the three of us, have. It's, it might sound like everything is so wonderful and so, like, you know, I mean, everything is kind of pink color. Oh, mm. we love each other. We're going to... It's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. We're going to talk about one of the worst things which ever happened in human history. There is nothing worse than this in the world. So it feels good to be safe emotionally to do it with people you really love and really trust. Yeah. And I also have to thank Yael and Josephine and everybody who is involved, and you, of course, too, <laughs> for being very supportive, very understanding. It's a group of good people yeah I understand what you mean that's actually one of the things that I love about working for Dash working with Josephine is like it's people first and and the story and getting the show second it's about that support so along that line what was it like what has it been like for you for you three working with Josephine but also when you talk about Mariana and Yuri you sound as, as close as family. Even though we never worked together before. <laughs> we had a process of uh, rehearsals and not even rehearsals. It's like research. We met for one week in Berlin in the summer. Uh, and we tried to figure out and understand in which direction to go musically. 
And this is also when the interviews and conversations with Rahil took place first with just me and then with me, Yuri and Mariana all together. There were some very harsh, very hard moments when, when we felt like a dead end. We don't know how to move on from here because the main point was to stay honest, to stay true, to not try to put any sugar on it, you know, criticize things, be honest, like say what you think and be provocative because the truth about Babi Yar is not that it happened 80 years ago. The truth about Babi Yar is that it's still happening all over the world. And that's the scariest thing. And this is something which was a lot on our mind while we were working here in Berlin in June. So I think that the openness, the honesty and the ability to open up and to take risks as people and as artists is something I appreciate very much about working with Yuri and Mariana and, and Yael and Josephine. It sounds like you guys are putting yourself in quite a vulnerable position there, being yourselves in this show that's, that's so sensitive, I guess. Um, what what do the three of you, if you can speak for them, what do you, what do you guys want audiences to respond with? Do you have a particular aim in mind or not at all? Or do you just, you know, is now just the right time to do a show like this? It's hard to answer your question because everybody is going to react differently and to take different things in mind back home. I mean, all already takes courage to come to such a concert, right? You have to be open enough not to be scared of what you might feel or experience in such a show. Not everybody would, you know, look through the list of concerts tomorrow night and choose to come to the show about Babi Yar. So it takes some courage on the side of the audience to choose to come and to confront all of this. Mariana, it's an absolute joy to speak to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know things have been a bit hectic your end. I just want to start by really asking you about how you became involved with the project, but also, you know, how you met Josephine. I know that when I spoke to her, she said you were involved from pretty early on. We didn't yet work uh, before on the project together, but I met Josephine actually a few years ago for the first time when I was performing in Dash Art. And then a few years later, I think Josephine produced another performance, another actually meeting with incredible artist Abraham Brody. And um, so basically it was for us possibility to come to London, to meet in Dash Art, to rehearse, and then to share our meeting with the audience. Till today, I mostly knew Josephine as a producer and as a person. And I'm very happy and curious and excited now to meet Josephine as a uh, artistic director. And till now, our collaboration is going very intense and very smooth in the same time. Intense because of the subject, subject of Bab and Yar, and also intense because I actually write a few minutes ago, I thought about our work, it's like long distance relationship, you know, because of COVID, we are forced to be in like in 
different parts in, in Cologne, in Berlin, in London, in Kyiv. Uh, and I just saw that, you know, only true love survive long distance relationship. And I really believe that in this project, we all, all connected with really, 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 really true love. <laughs> Sveta told me about having Rahil in the room, but not in the room, in the Zoom room. And that must have been quite odd having some that must have been quite an odd way to work having somebody talk about such deeply personal and and traumatic lived experience and pain via the medium of zoom did that feel different to to you guys yes it's it's very interesting i um while preparing to this project i of course went on my own research and heard many other witness talking and which are available online or I watched incredible film which were made which was made a few years ago spell your name based on survivors memories it's always really it's very not easy to hear their story in the same time I think it's incredible value that that we have those witnesses and that we have those stories which in a way they are for me like a protection, like something which is so important to have in your life, so to know where is where is the border and where you never want to come again. So it what I want to say actually, I want to say it's like it's a big pain and a big blessing in the same time. Mm. It's a pain because the stories are unbelievable and I always feel like wow, big question, what gave those people the strength to go on and that was very powerful in Rahil what what Rahil says she had such incredible power of life and power of joy and love maybe when I would say such words it could sound a little pathetic and little I don't know strange but when Rahil says that we have to trust we have to look forwards we have to live it sounds so healing and so strong and so true so i really just could say it's it's a pain and it's a blessing in the same time you know from everything i've heard about her she just sounds like she's got the most incredible spirit which is amazing but it it still must have been a quite difficult way to work can i ask you know how do how was that for you realizing that this was the work now that you guys were going to make together you realize it's the anniversary babia comes up was it a difficult decision to to make something about this did you or did it feel like the right time i don't i'm not sure if it's right time i it might be that it's too late but probably it's the right time i'm i'm it's incredible for me to work on this project especially with Sveta Kundish, which is who is contouring and and with Yuri, and to have this connection, we it's it's funny almost. We are both we are three of us. We were born in Ukraine. We are now living in Germany, mm. and we represent, I guess, this new generation of people who are very aware of their roots and background, like Ukrainian Jewish background and roots. But in the same time, we are very, you know, we are also aware that we are uh, humans, Europeans. We don't want anymore to be catched in the cage of very narrow nationalistic thinking about ethnicity or 
like you know to 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 have um, strong identity and strong connection to your own roots and in the same time to be very open and very not um catched in this narrow understanding of roots <laughs> i live so many years already in the west in germany and i work so much in america and i always had a feeling that subject of holocaust is really present here in the western life there are a lot of movies and a lot of programs and a lot of a lot of thinking through a lot of reflections but i really realized last years that it's still not so present or till that time was not so present in ukrainian we need to still go through this process it's very important to be able to look back to really for historians for artists for intellectuals for people for all of us for for you young people to look back to find as much as possible truth and if it's painful truth really to be able to watch it to experience it to name it to reflect on it because i think if we don't do it um it will be so easy to manipulate with us which is actually partially we can experience now in ukraine the attempt of manipulation again of memory which is the most horrible things which could could happen that's why i'm i feel almost like responsibility to to work on this project and um to gather all my strengths so to be able to watch this darkness again and it's interesting i was very happy when Svetlana brought a song Nipnema and the song really naming exactly this like why shall we go down to this darkness to this abyss why should i do this for me is now like really the question of the project why should i do it personally me mm. yes i have to do it so i am able to reflect i am able to know and so nobody else will manipulate yeah my my reflections very beautifully put far better than i ever could but i know what you mean you feel like why does it have to be you that has to say it why can't you watch someone else saying it but but maybe it has to be you because other people aren't able to express themselves in the way that you and and the three of you are um and sort of i guess along that line if we're talking about what you know about you guys putting yourself out there i know you're all playing yourselves on stage i guess i want to ask why and i want to ask you know with that what do you want audiences to to feel about that how do you want them to connect with it and what do you want them to take away from the show yeah of course i think the you know big challenge which we have while working on this project is um in one way how to speak out how to sing out and in the same time how to uh, remain incredibly respectful for me it's like how to create requiem how to create song of memory of this real people whose life was ended such brutally and such too early it was so beautifully when we were rehearsing in berlin and we all felt that in this performance we we will have lot of silence lot of impossibility sometimes to express 
things in concrete words, but in the same time, how music can help us to express those things which are unspeakable. For example, when I, when I observe what is going on now in Ukraine with the memorialization of tragedy in Bab and Yar, I really feel that there is a big danger when artistic ego, artistic self-love, I, I don't know how to say, is bigger than wish and this very respectful need to memory the people. I really feel that it's, it became extremely false and becomes extremely not respectful. And this is biggest challenge for us, how to, how to avoid it, how to not to do it. And one of the ways which we all came is to be very personal, to be very intimate, to be very, you know, like watching yourself in the mirror, to ask the most difficult question yourself, not the, not the others, but just really what I will do, how I would feel, how I, will, I would decide. When Josephine came with the concept that we will be having on the stage those different spaces, like one space is our rehearsal room, our stage, when we are musician, artist, and another space when we are me, Mariana, Svetlana, and Yuri, just face-to-face to the audience, very intimate and very honest. I think it's really good form to help us to achieve. Hi Yuri, thank you for joining me. I know you're dashing in between rehearsals at the moment. I guess, I, I mean, I'll jump right in and I, and I want to ask about why this project specifically appealed to you and if you could tell me a little bit about your background and the music that you that you make i'm jewish ukrainian i was born in kharkiv ukraine in 1975 i left germany with my parents and my grandparents in 1995 and uh, i've been doing music ever since what specifically is your musical specialty? Well, I play a bit of everything, I would say. Mostly guitars and uh, sometimes keyboards. And this is what I'm playing this show. But I also created some music colleges that... Um, or mashups uh, that I produced in my studio in uh, my brother's home. So I'll be a bit of a DJ and guitar player and noise maker and singer in this so you joined the project slightly later how do you know josephine or do you know josephine i certainly do josephine is one of the few people in my life i have an impression i've known for many many years we did meet much later, I guess, and since then kept in touch for, for years, I think. But it's just this feeling of knowing her for, you know, for half of my life, which I know is not true, but I like it this way. <laughs> Mariana and Sveta have both said that you guys became, that you, you sort of went through this experience together and now you feel like, well, like, you know, they've both said like family, but 
Can you speak a little to what that was like and what working with them was Absolutely. like? Absolutely. I both know Mariana and Sveta. I think they haven't really met before the uh, before the idea of this project came up, but I both knew them separately for years, but we were never as close as we became while working on this. I loved them both. I loved their music and their voices and i couldn't even imagine that at some point we'll have a chance to work together so i'm really happy this this is happening now why now for you is babayara a topic that you have wanted to explore or did the opportunity just just happen to present itself well this is interesting i think this is something this is a tragedy as Ukrainians and Jewish Ukrainians, well, in my and Sveta's case, living in Germany, are caring with ourselves uh, for all our lives. But it's also something I was exploring. So I was somehow in uh, in this when Josephine called and asked whether I could imagine joining this project. And I was like, yes, this sounds actually like something I've been already working on, you know. It's still just such, it's still just such a difficult topic and, and such a, a tricky thing to, to talk about. And, and that's why we should do it, I know. But do you personally have any apprehension about taking this show to Kiev? I think Kiev needs this as much as other places do, or it does, but it's also different because uh, if probably places like, well, in places like London or Berlin, not everyone is aware of what Babinyar is about, what it means to the history of, of the 20th century, of Jewish history, of Ukrainian history, of world history, of the history of the Second World War, then in Kiev everyone knows that. But Babin Yar is a subject of controversy, of re- also recent controversy. It's also, you know, like starting from the 60s, this is something that was really polarizing and uh, controversial in many different ways and stays this till now. So I'm looking forward to play our piece in Kiev, sharing our thoughts and perspectives on this. That's a really interesting point because different countries and different cultures will, will see totally contrasting things in the show and and their own lived experiences will will totally inform what they see. What do you hope audiences get out of it? I want them to know, to become aware of what happened there. I want them to leave uh, keeping the memory of what they learned about and maybe encouraging them to read more on this because this page, this chapter of the history of the Second World War is really... It's important to be remembered and uh, I... You know, the history books uh, usually tend to be so calm and treating what the, the stories uh, as something so abstract. So, you know, you see numbers and you read about it and it's just something which is not alive. And I think in a way it becomes 
alive in, when we are telling about this. And uh, you have to feel the individual pain. I think we connect with this on some very personal level, I believe, like all three of us. And uh, feeling this pain, processing this story is really difficult and painful too. But this is something I think we have to, we, we all have to go through. So we are taking our audiences on this very difficult journey. with Mariana, Svetlana and Yuri felt so inspirational. Their courage and the courage of their convictions. I went back to Josephine to talk a little bit about her feelings about bringing the show to Kiev. Mariana and Yuri and Svetlana are um, well-known and highly respected musicians. And that really... there's an awareness in the Ukrainian communities that and uh, that the anything that they touch will come from a place of of integrity and commitment to truth and um, sensitivity. So I'm not concerned that people being worried about us touching the piece, if that makes sense. Like I feel like people will trust that the audiences will trust us. Mariana is committed to uncovering and telling some uncomfortable truths about her own experiences with um, encountering anti-Semitism in her communities. Um, and she, she feels that it's really important to call it out um, and do it with love, but call it out and talk about it. Um, and that will be uncomfortable for some people. We have one song in the piece that um, we're calling Nash Brat, which is Russian for our brother. And it, it, the word comes from um, something that Rahil told us when she said that she'd come back from Siberia with her cousin to try to to reclaim some of the house and the furniture from her family and for her that was her family's and 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 a jewish family had occupied the house post second world war they'd returned as well and they'd occupied their house and had taken the furniture and um rahil and her cousin knocked on the door to try and get get back into the house, receive some of the furniture. They had nothing. I mean, she said that they were they had absolutely nothing, nowhere to live, no money whatsoever. And these occupiers refused to let the two girls in. And um, Sarahil said, you know, you understand they were our brothers. They were her brothers. And it was sort of code for they were Jews and they'd been through the war and they'd experienced it too. And they didn't, they didn't let us in. They didn't give us a thing. And she said that this Ukrainian neighbour in that block who had absolutely nothing, gave them a place to stay on their floor. Um, the story is unbelievable. And eventually, Mahil went on to tell us that, that she, the one day they'd left the door open and she did go in and she did, she, a cousin did see her furniture in the house and it was all still there and they managed to get some of the furniture back eventually. And she then said that they just literally burnt the furniture for firewood. I mean, the story is unbelievable. But I think, I, I suppose it comes back to what I was saying about the victim, the fact that everyone is complicit and everyone, you can't really understand what it is to go through this experience um, it, now, today, to have nothing, to be 
to be faced by such horrendous atrocity and to just fight for survival. And it's in that context that Mariana wants to talk about these experiences because it's not it's not that it's not one person is guilty and one person is the good the good people. I think we need to just talk about talk about it all. That might be difficult to tell that story. It's also difficult in the UK to tell the story of this Jewish family that didn't look out for the other Jewish family. It's also difficult. Can you tell me a, a bit more about the, the the sort of practicalities of making the show? What was the rehearsal process? really like i know you ended up having to do a lot of it on zoom i imagine that was because of covid covid helped us to make the piece because it delayed us and enabled us to use the anniversary date as a springboard for this extraordinary work but it's obviously also impeded our process enormous amounts i mean we were meant to start do our first week of rehearsals early r&d on the piece in december last year in person in germany and that didn't happen we did it on zoom all four of us in our in our um in our little zoom boxes sharing stories and sharing music and traditions and getting to know each other and then i and then we had another rehearsal week in in june in berlin and the covid regulations changed so i i couldn't i couldn't get in nor could yael who's he's working on the dramaturgy with me so the two of us sat in our respective homes watching the three of them in in the rehearsal room um and so it's had a bit of a challenging start um i haven't yet spent time with the three of them in fact i don't think i've met svetlana yet in person ever which is extraordinary to have to know her and her voice and her herself her so well and yet not having sort of breathed the same air um but actually, it's really informed the piece because it was magical to watch the rehearsal um, happening in the room when I couldn't be there. But the spirit and the sense of collaboration between the three of them who'd never played together was just joyous and wonderful to watch. And despite all of the sadness and the horror and the stories, um, the kind of chemistry and love between them when they play is just magnetic. So so we're bringing the world of the studio, the world of the rehearsal room to the stage. That's going to be the main kind of place for our performance. So the audience will walk in at the beginning of the show into Yuri's living room where they rehearsed in June and um, we'll watch, like I had the privilege of doing, we'll watch the experience of seeing the three of them make music together. They're all three of them are unbelievably engaging personalities. They, As performers, they... They speak with great articulation and with great clarity directly to audiences in gigs. And it's that kind of absolute um, kind of direct honesty that they have with their audiences when they are completely sort of stripped of any facade of performance that I really was really determined to find a way to keep in our show. So um, there will be moments in the performance when um, they step out of the rehearsal room, maybe not literally, but through tricks of theatre, they step out of the rehearsal room and speak to us directly about um, what led to that song that we've just heard or how they have a relationship with a particular text or a particular record. So we will move through time, backwards and forwards, um, through these asides that the individual artists will give to us in the audience and then we will be sort of stuck in the extraordinary bubble of Yuri's living room for other parts of it. Um, so that's the sort of premise is really is, is finding a way to bring the collaboration um, and the kind of community that they created to the stage at the same time as providing the history and the context and, and really importantly, bringing other people in. So we have Rachel, who'll be, who was very much a part of our rehearsal process, even though she was sort of on Skype from Braunschweig. She will be joining us in the rehearsal room through the wonders of technology. And then mm. we also have... 
Kuznetsov, Anatoly Kuznetsov's book, which I mentioned earlier. He's the sort of the, the writer who wrote the talked wrote about the experience of living through Babinyar. And then we have the amazing poetry of Mariana Kianovska, who's a contemporary Ukrainian poet. Um, and we've we've Mariana has written new music with to her poetry, and she wrote a series of poems about Babinyar. Um, voices from Babinyar, and we will bring some of the voices of the poems in Ukrainian into the Brahsa room. Um, and then we also have the poetry of Elena Talicha, who is a Ukrainian poet who died during the war, um, um, during the Second World War, and we will have her poetry as well, as well as um, some other bits of old Yiddish songs. So it, we will bring this stuff into the rehearsal room, um, and which uh, the, uh, uh, and it kind of to add to the texture and the layers of the piece. So speaking wholly as the as the director of the show, um, rather than the artistic director of Dash, what what is it that you personally want audiences to take away from this, to feel when they come and when they come and see it? I want songs for Babinyar to, to tell the stories of 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 the experience of Babinyar in a in a more complicated and more rich way. I believe that music can open portals to that experience. It can kind of open hearts. Um, the possibility of the kind of beauty within the music enables us to go to places of, of darkness, I think, and emerge from them the other side in a way perhaps that you can't when you're listening to text or listening to reading or seeing pictures. There's something about music which is holds your hand in a different way and guides you. I feel like the I feel like the encounter of this horrific moment in history is. I don't want there to be easy answers, so I feel that I feel that the layers of the story, the different voices that we're bringing into the piece, do something really important in terms of reminding us that there's no one truth, um, and and that's really important too. The different voices in the story and the different musical voices will enforce that that there isn't one way of telling and understanding history. And of course, there's something about these tr- kind of tragedies like these are continuing to exist, kind of when kind of intolerance and chaos kind of mi- mix together um, and um, just the importance of, of, of an awareness to, uh, to understand that. The music itself is exquisite and powerful and, and utterly transporting and I want people to have a transportative experience. I, I feel like um, that's also at, at its heart the most important thing. When you listen to them, the three of them playing music together, it is incredibly moving, incredibly touching and I think if people move if people leave the theatre with with their hearts opened having experienced something unbelievably moving and powerful and heard some stories that they'd never they'd never heard before and seen for this story told in a different way that will be enough a huge thank you to all my speakers on the dash pod this week to Uliam, Mariana, Sveta and Yuri and of course our artistic director Josephine Burton Songs for Babinyar is going to be on Sunday the 21st of November at JW3 in London if you want to come along or we are live streaming it as well. And then we'll be in Kiev the first week of December. If you're enjoying the Dash Pod, please do like and subscribe. It helps us stay visible and means the world to us. I'm Rachel Hedge and see you next time.